Uh, Cult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. John Dee was born in London in 1527 and died in 1608 or 1609 at his home in Mortlake, Surrey. He was a mathematician, astronomer, consultant to explorers, alchemist, translator of angelic language, and amassed one of the most impressive libraries in Europe, gathering around 3,000 books and another 1,000 manuscripts. His reputation as an occultist has lasted through the centuries and is perhaps his largest claim to fame today. But it belies his effort late in life to try and distance himself from the label of conjurer. Dee married three times. His first two wives were childless. His third wife, Jane Fromond, was 25 years younger than Dee, but they seem to have had a happy marriage and had eight children together. Only three of his children survived him, which is not a surprise, seeing that he lived 80 years during a time of religious upheaval, rioting, and plague. Dee's long life is especially impressive given his regular appearance at the various courts of Europe and the accusations leveled against him of necromancy and espionage. Today, we are going to do a bit of scrying, seek the Philosopher's Stone, and elicit John Dee's occult confession. Go. Oh, am I supposed to say something now? Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, this guy, this guy uh, seems uh, well... Um, well-versed in literally freaking everything. <laughs> For a renaissance, man. Oh. He is literally a renaissance Oh, man. absolutely. <laughs> a man of the renaissance. Yeah, that's the voice of Andrew Mims. Hello. I'm the voice of Andrew Mims. <laughs> well, I assume you're attached to... I certainly Andrew hope Mims. so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we always just call you Mims, but, you know, we've got to say the whole name yeah, yeah. here on the podcast. So, um... You may be familiar with uh, this voice if you are one of our patrons. Uh, Mims, this is your first uh, discussion on the main podcast, but you did a rock and roll episode with us, didn't you? Yes, I did. Uh, you may also, now some of you may be thinking as well as you listen to Mims, uh, boy, that, that sounds an awful lot like uh, Church Secrets. Uh, but what's what's going on here is that Mims actually, now this is just weird. I mean, it's total coincidence that Mims has uh, got an identical twin um, who happens to be our rival podcast, Church Secrets. Yeah, I don't like to talk about my brother a whole lot. He's um, <laughs> a bit out there, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, when's the last time you guys spoke? Christmas, something like that. <laughs> That's awkward. Yeah, it's awkward. Just sitting at ends of the ends of the table. It, it was it was it was an awkward time. He actually uh, turned you on to this podcast, right? He lets you know about us. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. He was just yeah. like, uh, you know, uh, plenty of unsavory words. Uh, but I was just like, hey, this seems this this seems cool. So I, uh, I hopped in. Quit your metal band and hopped into the podcast. Something like that. <laughs> let's, uh, let's do that pledge. We the members we the of members the, of the secret, secret order, order of alchemical actors, chemical actors do, solemnly do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the, the history of the, occult, of the occult as, as far as, as we, we know. know it. That's pretty good for a first okay, time. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Not that's, too bad.
could have been a lot worse. <laughs> Just the two of us today. Uh, Olivia is hard at work on uh, our next episode uh, coming up, which is going to be our first uh, interview-based episode. We're not going to do those very often, but uh, we've interviewed a bunch of uh, cult-themed artists. Um, so that's what Olivia's at right now. She's been uh, busy interviewing folks. Um, so uh, let's get into some uh, plugs. Uh, do you know how to do the plugs, Mims? Um, not really. You just say the word plug three times. Plug, plug, plug. <laughs> like that? Right. Need to be a little more mysterious, a little more uh, energetic? Well, you, get just... to, you get to do it again on the way out. So I, I think that what was amazing about that is that I think you managed to say the word exactly the same each time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so we have... Uh, are we uh, glad, ha- happy to welcome Roxy B? I love that name, Roxy, Roxanne. Uh, or maybe you're just Roxy. I don't, how do I know? Uh, Bradley G, Colleen M, also Sharon M. We want to welcome back uh, some returning patrons, Derek M and Laura D. And thank our friend Cat Daddy Welds uh, for a bump in, in uh, patron donation. Thank you, Cat Daddy. I like that name. Cat Daddy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's a welder, Cat Daddy. Oh, that's neat. I think I can gender him because he's going by Daddy here, so I'll go ahead and he, well, Cat One Daddy would Wells. assume, we hope. If, <laughs> yes. If not, it's whatever, you know? And I know because he's communicated with us. Um, so I did mention uh, the last time uh, that we were we had hit our mark for funding the podcast, uh, and this is true. Uh, but you notice folks are still joining. Now there are good reasons for that. Uh, first and foremost is that these folks are helping us pay down the debt we've accrued to this point. <laughs> but um, the second part of this is that uh, now that we've hit this point, what that means is not that uh, we just sort of sit back and say, "Okay, we're good." As patrons continue to uh, join join the crew. Uh, what we'll be putting that money toward is things like expanding onto YouTube um, and developing new content, uh, not to mention developing new Patreon content. Um, so, yes, we are thrilled. We have hit our first benchmark, uh, but now, as as is customary, we have set a higher benchmark for ourselves. Um, and if you have been enjoying the podcast, uh, we hope you will consider even a dollar a month uh, to sustain us, uh, but also to expand us out into the wide universe of the interwebs all right uh yeah so at the end of the episode i'll say one more thing at the end of the episode uh we are going to talk a bit about the dark pool mims uh, was tangentially connected to the dark pool uh which is our newest project so he'll be the perfect person to as a sounding board for (laughs) (laughs) uh, discussing uh, exactly what this is about uh okay so here's your chance mims close up those plugs plug 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 Oh, nice variation better, better. in there. Yeah, I like to. I, I figured it'd fluctuate this time. Yeah, I like that. It was nice fluctuation. Thank you. Thank you. D entered Cambridge at the age of fifteen, where he kept a relatively rigorous study schedule, or at least so he tells us. We have to keep in mind that D, like most living, breathing people, wrote about himself with a strong bias, like we all do, right? Yeah. In the years 1543, 1544, and 1545, I was so vehemently bent to study that for those years I did inviolably keep this order, only to sleep four hours every night, to allow to meet and drink, and some refreshing after, two hours every day, and of the other eighteen hours all, except the time of going to and being at divine service, 
was spent in my studies and learning. He uh, only slept four hours every night. That's relatable. <laughs> in 1547, D traveled to the continent to study mathematics with a variety of scholars, including uh, Gemma Frisius, Gerardus Mercator, Gaspar Amarica, and Antonius Gogava. Mercator gave D globes, and Frisius gave him astronomical instruments, including a staff and a ring. Very, like, RPG there. Yeah, I was, I was just about to say that. Just like, <laughs> go forth, young lad. <laughs> he became a fellow at Trinity College and earned his Master of Arts there before making another trip to the continent to continue his education. He studied Euclid's geometry at the University of Paris and turned down a 200-crown pension offered him by the French king, seemingly out of loyalty to the English crown. Would you turn down a 200-pound pension, Mims? Oh, absolutely not. That's, wait, 200 pounds, that's not a whole lot of money. <laughs> well, it was back then, but yeah, well, yeah, today it would not be a whole lot. Yeah, I don't know. I'm poor. <laughs> so, so maybe like, you'd be I'll, open I'll, to it. Yeah, I, I, I'll take, I'll, I'll do anything. I'll do anything for 20 bucks, so. Well, here we are podcasting. Yeah. For roughly that amount. <laughs> <laughs> Dee's first brush with infamy happened in 1555 when he cast horoscopes on Mary Tudor, then Queen of England, as well as her sister Elizabeth. He was apparently imprisoned in the same place as Elizabeth herself, who had been sequestered there because of the potential threat she posed to Mary's throne. For those of you who are not all up on your Tudor soap opera, basically what happened was after Henry VIII died, uh, Mary, well, his son succeeded him, but his son was short-lived. And then Mary, his uh, eldest daughter uh, by Catherine of Aragon, succeeded him, uh, and he still had a younger daughter by Anne Boleyn, and that was Elizabeth uh, Tudor, ultimately Elizabeth I. So Mary kept Elizabeth in the tower for quite a while, um, but was unwilling to execute her own sister. So eventually, you know, Elizabeth replaced her. Nah. Yeah, a Catholic Protestant thing. It ain't easy. Upon suspicion of which my service then, and upon the false information given in by one George Eris and Prudhoe, that I endeavored by enchantments to destroy Queen Mary I, I was prisoner at Hampton Court, even in the week next before the same Whitsuntide that Her Majesty was their prisoner also. The charge was elevated to treason, but Dee managed to talk himself out of it in the Star Chamber with the Privy Council, and again with the ecclesiastical authorities. He was constantly going up before these various groups and saying, you shouldn't kill me. So he's a good talker, this man. Oh, yeah, like if he... If you got to talk your way out of death, you know you're either doing something right or horribly wrong. <laughs> or maybe both. Hopefully both. <laughs> in 1558, when Elizabeth I succeeded her sister Mary to the throne of England, she selected John Dee as her advisor on matters of science and astrology. Her Majesty very graciously took me to her service at Whitehall before her coronation, being to her Majesty commended by the Right Honorable Earl of Pembroke and the Lord Robert after Earl of Leicester. At which time her majesty used these words unto the said lords. Where my brother hath given him a crown, I will give him a noble. Dee was apparently also tapped as Elizabeth's personal defense against problems. Problems as mundane as a toothache, and as metaphysical as curses and black magic. My careful and faithful endeavors were with great speed required, 
as by divers' messages sent unto me one after another in the morning, to prevent the mischief which divers of Her Majesty's Privy Council suspected to be intended against Her Majesty's person, by means of a certain wax image, with a great pin stuck into it about the breast of it, found in Lincoln's infield, whereon I did satisfy Her Majesty's desire and the Lord of the Honorable Privy Council within a few hours, in a godly and artificial manner. Having rejected an offer to teach at Oxford, Dee enjoyed an eclectic career. He was one of the original fellows at Trinity College, Cambridge. He was also a theater technician whose stage effects in Aristophanes' piece earned him a reputation as a magician. He was a traveling lecturer, a student of math and astronomy, and cartography, and traveled to major cities across Europe. He was also, because we're talking about him on this podcast, a noted occultist. I never would have guessed. <laughs> now, this is math, history, math, math, mathematical confessions. We're here to talk yeah. D's math. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I was going to make a math joke, but I'm, I, I, I maybe passed math with like D's. So, yeah. <laughs> There's a math joke right there. <laughs> I am a math joke. <laughs> Dee's horoscopes were a regular feature of his engagement with royalty. Later in his career, he predicted death dates for Elizabeth I, King Philip II of Spain, and Emperor Rudolf II. Either because he was called upon or of his own accord, he selected the coronation date for Elizabeth based on his astronomical charts. And that date was January the 15th, 1559. While this might suggest Dee had a central place in Elizabeth's court, he was actually a more marginal figure. Elizabeth hoped to use Dee's alchemical work if he could be successful at achieving any sort of transmutation of metals, but Dee's alchemy never amounted to much, and so Elizabeth never had much occasion to use his expertise, which I guess is kind of a loose term, seeing as he didn't accomplish much in the way of alchemy. Yeah, I mean... Win some, you lose some. A law of equivalent exchange and whatnot. He spent much of his early years on the court instructing explorers like Stephen Bourne on the best means to navigate to Russia and to open up trade with the Russians. Dee encouraged Britain's colonization of the Americas by advocating the narrative that the Welsh Prince Madoc had first colonized North America in 1170. So this is sort of important. Uh, This is the way that the British were trying to make the case that America belonged to them. Because, you know, as uh, beginning with Columbus, right, 1492, all sorts of European countries are working their way over to America. So Dee is trying to say, well, hold on, Columbus. We were there in 1170. This Welsh prince got there. Suck it, Columbus! Right? Why come we don't have Prince Maddox Day? Here's why. Uh, (laughs) Dee was of Welsh ancestry, uh, and so he had a legitimate claim to special access to Welsh history and lore. But the story of Maddock fleeing conflict at home and braving the Atlantic to settle in the New World is generally regarded as a legend today. That having been said, it circulated widely during the Elizabethan period. It was never picked up as the Crown's official line, though, in terms of propaganda, but Dee's attempt certainly didn't hurt the British cause to undercut Spain's claims through our man Columbus. Dee also worked with several teams of explorers attempting to find a northwest passage through the Arctic Ocean into Asia. Prince Maddox Day. We should come up with that. What day yeah. should that be? Um, He's Welsh. What month do you think? I don't know. Like, like a rainy, is, like April. Yeah, Shopping yeah. April. Like, like <laughs> some, sometime in the spring where it's like very damp. April. Moist. 
You can go ahead and bleep out me saying moist. In addition to astrology and navigation, Dee regarded himself as a great mathematician. In truth, he was more of a great promoter of mathematics. He was math's best hype man. He spent a lot of his time teaching math to navigate navigators and bringing mathematical works before the English reading public. He wrote an extensive preface to Euclid and edited Robert Record's Ground for Arts, which was aimed at teaching mathematics to seamen and mechanics. So uh, he's sort of like a textbook editor as far as math is concerned. I like the term mathematical hype man because those are two words that I never would expect to hear together. <laughs> yeah, we could really use one at the college. Math oh, absolutely. Is universally loathed. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I, I feel like I feel subject. like it might have gotten me to you know pass statistics with a, a better grade. Well, okay, so we've done all that stuff, uh, but you guys are not here to hear about uh, Russian exploration and math. You're here to talk about alchemy. Gentle confessors, let's get down to it. Dee's great passion was for alchemy. He believed that mathematics were the bridge connecting the natural with the supernatural. So see, we're pulling it all together. In 1564, Dee published his great alchemical text, the Monus Hieroglyphica. The book proposed a symbolic language that would explain the inner workings of creation, the material world, and a mystical plan for the ascent of the soul. In 1556, Dee spent the month of July reading 55 alchemical texts, which he categorized in his library under the heading Chemiki suggesting the overlap of chemistry and alchemy. So I guess if you put the words together, you get yeah. chemiky. That's fun. A, yeah, that's a, that's a really like fun-sounding word. It's cute. Yeah. Seems like a character on a kid's show. Hi, guys, I'm chemiky! Frothing at the head. <laughs> bubbling over. Yeah. Uh, okay. So D was particularly engaged with Paracelsian literature having over 90 volumes devoted to Paracelsus. Elizabeth I was apparently very interested in the secrets hidden in Dee's book. After my return from the Emperor's court, Her Majesty very gracefully vouchsafed to account herself my scholar in my book, written to the Emperor Maximilian, entitled Monas Hieroglyphica, and said if I would disclose unto her the secrets of that book, she would, et dissere et faci, learn and do. Following the theories of German polymath Johannes Trithemius, Dee advanced the connection between astrology and alchemy, stressing the interconnection of cosmos and earth. Alchemy was considered an inferior or terrestrial form of astrology. The same secrets discovered through alchemical research would reflect the secrets of the cosmos. As we'll find out in a later episode, the Chinese feel much the same, that alchemy and astrology are intimately connected. The monus is a symbolic exploration that does not always correlate to concrete applications. Dee analyzes his central symbol, the titular monus hieroglyphica. Hieroglyphica. There it is. The symbol looks like a one-eyed stick figure with the moon forming horns on the top of the head and two open curves where the feet would be. The figure represents Mercury, the first planet, with the open downward-facing curves at the bottom representing Aries, first in the zodiac. The symbols for Alpha and Omega can be formed from the monus and also the symbols for all of the planets. I'm sure it's very easy for all of you to picture. If there's one thing podcasts are good at, it's describing complex symbols. Just uh, trust us. It, it looks it looks cool. Think like a think like in like a 70s like occult based prog rock band symbol. 
Yeah, this is the uh, thing that's most closely identified with him, at least image-wise. Yeah. So in his alchemical treatise, D borrows two themes from the Emerald Tablet attributed to Hermes Trismegistus. Number one, the Philosopher's Stone is a monad, much like the unitary word of God that formed the universe. So it is this sort of like one true element. Number two, the interdependence of the celestial and the terrestrial is a fact of nature. So as above, so below. And the movement from one to the many and back to the one and the uniting of earth and heaven are central to the process that D envisions. This is emerald tablet kind of stuff. So we go up to the heavens, we come back to the earth, we're uniting heaven and earth. This is all the alchemical work that we're trying to achieve. Metals form the combination of a kind of ideal philosophical or abstract concept of sulfur and mercury, depending on their purity and proportion. Actual sulfur and mercury approximate these substances but are pale reflections. If ideal mercury and sulfur are perfectly pure and combined in perfect equilibrium, they form the philosopher's stone, which in turn forms gold. So you see that it takes a lot of human action to get this perfect alchemical function. We don't just want to use the stuff you pulled out of the ground. Yeah, you gotta like you gotta like make sure it's just like just the right amount of mercury to kill you. You got to mess around with it. Yeah, you got to yeah. get your hands on it. Get your yeah, hands dirty. Yeah. So, the Philosopher's Stone is an elixir that takes the imperfect and impure proportions of mercury and sulfur and transforms them such that they match the conditions for making gold. Any common substance could theoretically be used, with its components being broken down and purified into the ideal sulfur and mercury. Different authors had different approaches to forming these purified substances. Thomas Norton, for example, focused on the combinations of fire, earth, water, and air, and their various transformations. The alchemist mimics the creator in the way he combines these elements to yield the philosopher's stone. Dee talked about the sun as a philosophical mercury and the moon as philosophical sulfur, combining to purify the earth as the basic matter of the process. The elements ascend through seven revolutions corresponding to the seven planets toward a perfect state of purity and unity. This process is parallel to the movement from body to soul, such that the soul's mystical ascension is also the alchemical transmutation. So everything is just sort of like reflecting everything else. Everything is a microcosm of everything else else or a symbol for something else, whether we're talking about the moon and the sun or the planets or the body and the soul, it's all the same. It's all kind of like interwoven into like some cosmic web. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly a web. Yeah. A cosmic web, a unity, a, a fundamental unity. I mean, that's what alchemy gets at, that there is this fundamental unity that which allows us to achieve these transmutations because everything is essentially in one way or another the same. Occult alchemy had been largely rejected during the Enlightenment, but interest in alchemy as a spiritual rather than a physical process surfaced during the occult revival at the turn of the 20th century. Dee bridged this divide. He practiced with real chemicals, like mercury, but he but he lived till 80. <laughs> so That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there was sort of like elixir to life in, in, in that. Or... Yeah, maybe messing with mercury is not so bad. Uh, Occult Confessions does not endorse the idea that messing with mercury is not so bad. You get, just got to get some mercury and just, I don't know, a straw? <laughs> a straw. Yeah. 
does not endorse. He practiced with real chemicals, uh, but he also encouraged an occult spiritual enlightenment as essential to the alchemical process. So Dee is working both sides of the coin here. Um, as a Renaissance al- alchemist, he's he's both attempting to you know achieve this work through the manipulation, the exoteric with an X, um, work of actually manipulating physical substances, but he's also doing that interior esoteric work on the soul to help accomplish his goal. So th- this shows us sort of the full picture of alchemy, that it's both the alchemist trying to achieve a spiritual transcendence and the alchemist trying to achieve a physical transcendence all at once. His work was neither literal, nor was it entirely a metaphor for internal spiritual illumination in this way, because he was working in both places. So we can't just take D and read him as a metaphor, like everything he has to say about chemicals as a metaphor for the soul, because he was literally working with chemicals. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Right? The actual process involves combining different metals with acids, heating them, striking them down with rainwater when the reactions get out of hand, and making measurements. And let me say one more time, the man lived to 80. He's striking down <laughs> these chemicals. Yeah, he's just like, he's just like <laughs> mixing shit with like no abandon, with like little to no abandon, just like, I'm going to just see what this does. Clouds keeps of like gas. A- he like, right. keeps like a glass of water to just pour on it if it if it if it goes bad. <laughs> Things exploding. He's fine. He's gonna be fine. Roger Cook was Dee's primary assistant in alchemical experiments from 1566 to 1580, at which point they had an argument and Dee gave him, quote, some pretty alchemical experiments with which to make a living and sent him on his way. Twenty years later, Cook returned to continue distilling for Dee. This relationship actually tells us a lot about Dee's alchemy. It shows that he knew some ways of using alchemy to create a profitable result. This does not mean gold, but he was able to use alchemy to do something that Cook saw value in, right? So Cook took his secrets, left, because they had an argument, and Dee was like, okay, fine, you can go. Here's here's a couple of tricks you can do just to, like, you know, keep you going because you've been good to me. If they didn't work for Cook, he wouldn't have come back, right? He would have been pissed. Oh, yeah. So they must have worked. So he comes back um, to two decades uh, after two decades of practicing on his own. But let's talk about uh, Dee's more famous uh, companion. Uh, do you know the name of this guy? Uh, not offhand. Quizzing you because you knew the Monas, so I, I didn't know if you. That's all right. Yeah. It's Edward Kelly. Edward Kelly is the name of the guy. In 1582, Elizabeth I commissioned Dee to revise the Julian calendar. Pope Gregory XIII had commissioned his own calendar the year before, based on the year of the Council of Nicaea. Dee advocated taking up that Catholic calendar, but suggested editing it so that it was based on the year of Jesus' birth, rather than the Council of Nicaea. Sort of like Protestant edit to a Catholic calendar. It's got to be, like, confusing for, like, the people that, like, would be, like, bouncing back and forth between the two. <laughs> yes. It's like, uh, cra- and i got to remember uh, what, what when the anniversary is this year. <laughs> at Pete's house, it's July the 1st, but over at Wendy's house, it's the 3rd. So the church had shaved 10 days off the calendar, but Dee's calculation shaved off 11. And I guess the goal was a slimmer calendar. The bishops ultimately rejected Dee's calendar because the idea for a calendrical reform had initially been issued by the Pope, and the Protestant English court viewed the Pope as an Antichrist. 
So the whole project was just botched. <laughs> D was like, oh, look, they're fixing the calendar. I can fix a better calendar than them. And Elizabeth was like, it's the Pope's idea. So it's poison, the Antichrist. So this was more or less the end of Dee's career outside the realm of the occult. After 1583, he devoted himself almost exclusively to alchemical pursuits and angelic communication. His work focused on three primary areas. First, the finding of buried treasure through scrying, uh, which involves a pendulum. You know what we're talking about, scrying? Can you picture yeah. it, Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you, you get that pendulum and you let it swing and it helps you determine, you know, yes or no answers or helps you find stuff if you put it over a map, right? So yeah. num- number two, it was the discovering of the philosopher's stone sought by alchemists, which privileged spiritual transformation in order to achieve the transmutation of metals. We've been on this. And finally, predicting and understanding the dawning of an imminent new age, which should sound very familiar to us. This is something that's been happening since the 60s uh, in the Western world. So D was looking for that new age all the way back in 1600. Hey, I mean, a man before his time. Right? D's theorizing on a new age and universal religion began actually in 1572, even further before his time, um, when he noticed the appearance of a new star in the constellation Cassiopeia, a comet that appeared in 1577 further cemented his ideas. Her Majesty took pleasure to hear my opinion of the comet appearing anno 1577. Whereas the judgment of some had unduly bred great fear and doubt in many of the court, being men of no small account. For Dee, the star signified the emergence of a new British empire, spurred by the colonization of North America and ruled over by Elizabeth I with Dee as her court philosopher. Dee saw himself as a prophet who could aid in the conversion of the Jews and create a universal religion uniting Catholics and Protestants. Everyone would become one under the one religion, the one world religion. He's sounding like some sort of QAnon nightmare now, isn't he? Yeah, that's, that's a bit... Uh, that's a bit uh... <laughs> Like super villainy. Yeah, he's proto Illuminatus. D came to believe through his angels that the apocalypse would come in 1588, a date that he lived through without a substantial temporal or cosmic change coming to pass. A lot of womp womp for D in his life. Yeah, that's like, I don't know if that would be like a disappointment to him or if it would just be like, oh, okay, that's, that's, that, that, that's neat. <laughs> this happens to me all the time. So, uh, getting now to our man, Kelly. Um, he was both a scryer and an assistant in Dee's alchemical operations during this period, bringing Dee a red powder that he claimed to be the Philosopher's Stone, which would then need to be manipulated in order to make gold. Kelly's angels promised a kind of alchemy not practiced since the time of Adam that would yield a medicine of God capable of healing the sickness and decay of the natural world. So the premise here is that the Adam, the original man, was an alchemist um, and was possessed of alchemical secrets that had been lost through time. Polish Count Albrecht uh, Alaski took an interest in Dee's work and persuaded him that his efforts would be better appreciated in Poland rather than at the English court, where he was being largely ignored. Shout out to Michael, uh, who was a Polish listener who I just heard from today. Uh, so how interesting. We're talking about Poland. Uh, and off Dee goes to Poland to work for the Count. Uh, Dee and Kelly then left with Lasky on a tour of the continent. So no sooner do they arrive in Poland than they bag their bags and start touring the world with a pole. 
they toured apparently quickly and also in secret, uh, and they didn't return to England for six years. That's that. That's quite a trip. Quite a trip. Yeah, it's six. It's a lot of. Well, you got to bear in mind, right? We don't have airplanes or anything, so. Yeah, yeah. M- probably mostly walking or horses <laughs> and whatnot. A lot of walking, a lot of cart action. Uh, like his, his thighs, like his or his calves, must be like, like, <laughs> like rocks. Again, eighty years old. He was the Schwarzenegger of his time. He first moved to Krakow with his family, as well as Kelly and Kelly's family. Krakow uh, was a Polish college town, and Dee spent a whole year there. While living in Poland, he traveled to Prague, the seat of Rudolf II's Holy Roman Empire. Dee had received a message from Kelly's angels telling him to write a letter to the emperor, informing him that Dee had discovered the stone. In 1584, Dee was granted an audience and told the emperor exactly that. The emperor made an empty promise of patronage and assigned one of his privy counselors, Dr. Curtius, to hear Dee out on his philosopher's stone. I assume because, pardon the pun, he was a courteous guy. These are the reasons we get negative reviews. Although initially open to Dee's claims, Rudolf II quickly turned on the English alchemist. Francesco Pucci had befriended Dee and Kelly and sat in on some of these angelic sessions. Pucci was a spy for Pope Sixtus V. Isn't that confusing? That's that's the (laughs) if if. If you have a number in your name and a title, <laughs> that is a number. They should at least match. Yeah. Pope Fifthus the Fifth, but to get to the Fifth, you're going to have to have a Pope Fifthus the Fourth and Pope Fifthus the Third. Pope Sixtus. Just change your the name. Just, right. just, 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 just change your name at that point. If there hasn't been a Sixtus the Sixth, can I suggest right now to the College of Cardinals that they begin considering this as their Pope name? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so Sixtus the Fifth had asked Rudolf II to arrest Dee and Kelly and send them to Rome for questioning, probably because of the two Anglicans' sustained presence in the Catholic Empire and because of suspicions that they were practicing necromancy. So the Pope is basically like, look at these two Protestant dudes chilling in my Holy Roman Empire doing all their weird alchemy stuff. That must be the devil. Can't, can't, they, just, can't they just like raise a family in peace? <laughs> Apparently not. Not if you're also not if you're raising them on yeah, yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> like raising them like from the dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you can't do that in peace. That's, that's going to draw a crowd. The emperor had three of D's manuscripts based on his angelic conversations burned, and then he banished D and Kelly from Prague. Dee may have been working as a spy for Sir Francis Walsingham at this point, but there's no conclusive evidence outside of letters between them alleged to have been written in cipher. Now, many of you are probably wondering, who is Sir Francis Walsingham? Because you're not up on your Elizabethan court politics. Mims, you up on your Elizabethan court politics? Can't say I am, Rob. So Walsingham was Elizabeth I's principal secretary from 1573 until 1590, and he was generally regarded as her spy master. Walsingham had a habit of employing occultists as spies, deploying Dominican friar and hermetical philosopher Giordano Bruno to the French embassy, through whom he eventually uncovered pieces of a plot by supporters of Mary, Queen of Scots, to invade England and take the throne. So frequently we see in Walsingham uh, these occultists operating uh, uh, sort of in a high political function. Yeah, it would just kind of like draw like attention, just like, 
Oh, they got like three occultists in town. Uh, which one is it? <laughs> so, any occult listeners out there who who participated in the Russian hacking of our American democracy, uh, could you please just go ahead and out yourselves to us? We know you're out there. We see you. Yeah, we we know it. There's no hiding it. There's <laughs> no hiding. D's involvement in espionage, however, uh, although it was suspected by his contemporaries, remains unproven. But the fact that he knew Walsingham was tied to the court and was also an occultist who was traveling the world, it seems reasonable that Walsingham was probably using him to gather information. In September 1586, D and Kelly settled in Trebon in Bohemia, where Count Wilhelm Rosenberg offered them his patronage. Those counts really just loved, loved my man D. Yeah, yeah, uh, for for good reason. He he seemed like a like a pretty smart dude, right? He, he's mathematical, so of course a count. Oh, the yeah. puns ah. fast and loose. Yeah, Rosenberg. There goes another negative review. <laughs> Rosenberg was a major patron of alchemists. We're up to two today. Major patron of alchemists uh, with one of the greatest fortunes in Europe at the time. Rumors spread that Dee had succeeded in discovering the Philosopher's Stone, and Russia's, Russia's Tsar Fyodor Ivanovich contacted Dee to get him to come to his court for a sum of £2,000 per year. But here's what's weird about this. Dee, who was never a wealthy guy and never managed to get Elizabeth to pay him very much, turned down this very lucrative offer to move to Russia. Uh, that, like that, that, that was, that was like a, that was like a, a, a pretty handsome sum of money back oh, then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Y- you accepted 200 pounds earlier. This is 10 times that. Yeah, but I should, I should have held off. <laughs> you could have gone to Russia. But it's cold there. Uh, but other than that, you're getting paid. Yeah, like for, for, for that kind of, for that kind of like 1500s money, like absolutely. Lovely people. By 1587, Dee and Kelly had started to part ways on their vision for their alchemical and mystical process. Kelly was laser-like focused on the Philosopher's Stone, whereas Dee was interested in the angelic visions of a dawning new age. Kelly's spirits told Dee to release the scryer from his service, and Dee complied, replacing Kelly with his seven-year-old son, Arthur. But Arthur was unable to see the spirits, no matter how Dee attempted to prepare him. And so Dee entreated Kelly to return to work for him, and Kelly consented to resume his previous job. The angels informed Dee through Kelly that Dee and Kelly should henceforth share everything, including their wives. Kinky. The pair had a long conversation about this request, but Dee ultimately agreed, and his wife Jane slept with Kelly, arguably a breaking point in the two men's relationship. I mean, understandable. Oof. Yeah. Around this time, Kelly's fame eclipsed Dee's, such that the British diplomat Sir Edward Dyer requested that Kelly come back to court to show how he'd produced gold, but said nothing to Dee. This was a remarkable insult to the learned alchemist, since Dyer was godfather to one of Dee's children. Ouch. Mm. At Rudolph II's court, Kelly demonstrated his ability to turn an ounce and a quarter of mercury into an ounce of gold using his red powder. He was knighted and stayed in Bohemia for six years, but the emperor eventually grew tired of him and threw him in prison. There's <laughs> no middle ground there. Yeah, it's just like you're either you're either liked or hated Star so much. Star the show or in jail. Yeah. In 1595, Kelly died after sustaining serious injuries from a fall while attempting to escape his imprisonment. That brings us to the last chapter in Dee's life, Manchester. 
On returning to England in November 1589, he discovered that his library at Mortlake had been raided. So he left his house for six years. <laughs> and, you know, like thieves got in and, you know, mice and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, can, can you really expect it? Did he have like somebody like checking up on it? In addition to his 4,000 volumes, globes, and astronomical instruments, Dee had collected compasses and rare documents that may have gone toward proving his case that the Princes of Wales had some claim on the New World. Unto the tower I had vowed these, my hardly gotten monuments, as in manner out of a dunghill in the corner of a church wherein very many were utterly spoiled by rotting, through the rain continually for many years before falling on them, through the decayed roof of that church lying desolate and waste at this hour. But truly well deserve they the imprisonment of this tower that will still now keep them, if any public warning by Her Majesty or Her Right Honorable Council were given for restitution of them to the office in the tower. There are two accounts of this event. One holds that Dee's house had been ransacked by an angry mob, likely inspired by prejudice against his supposed necromancy, and his priceless library and instruments were destroyed. Another version has Dee's former associates pilfering Dee's collection in his absence. In this version, Dee is less of a black magic boogeyman and more a victim of crappy friends who knew the value of his collection. His description shows that in either case his place had been left in ruin. He spent the next six years living off the generosity of friends and sales of his books and anxiously appealing to the Queen and her Privy Council for a position. Most reverently and earnestly, yea, in manner with bloody tears of heart, I and my wife, our seven children and our servants, seventeen of us in all, do this day make our petition unto your honors, that upon all godly, charitable, and just respects, had of all that which this day you have seen, heard, and perceived, you will make such report unto her most excellent majesty, with humble request for speedy relief, that we will not be constrained to do or suffer otherwise than become with Christians. He was finally granted the wardenship of Christ College at Manchester in 1595, which he held until 1609. There's some debate as to whether this appointment, which put Dee in charge of a small but contentious group of mostly Puritan fellows for a sum of money that was not quite enough to support his family, was actually a punishment. One would think. It's entirely possible. Valid conclusion. At Manchester, Dee came up against one of several cases of exorcism that he dealt with in his lifetime. In 1596, Nicholas Starkey of Cleworth Hall in Lancashire contacted Dee for help with his children who had been struck with fits of shouting, including violent responses to prayer and a strange ability to speak in Latin, which actually sounds kind of like a good thing. I mean, like, probably like the, like the, Screaming fits, not ne- not necessarily so, but... Uh... Starkey had initially consulted a parish priest and local witch named Edmund Hartley. Hartley initially had some success, but Starkey cut ties with him when he started demanding money and cursing Starkey's enemies. Starkey consulted with Dee, but Dee advised him to seek help from some goodly preachers and sharply removed Hartley. Legal proceedings were initiated against the witch on charges of conjuring, but Starkey's children, cursed by Hartley's influence, were unable to speak out against him. Dee sought the assistance of noted exorcist John Darrell, who succeeded in curing the children in March 1597, soon after Hartley had been hung for a witch. Very dramatic episode. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. During the English Renaissance, exorcism was a fraught topic, and as we discussed in our episode on the topic of exorcism, frequently a battleground for Protestants and Catholics, each of which sought to prove the supremacy of their religion through their success at purging demons. 
Protestants accomplished exorcisms through intense prayer and fasting, whereas Catholics brought out their usual rituals, invocations, and paraphernalia, all anathema to good Protestant believers. The Archbishop of Canterbury had John Darrell imprisoned on charges of fraud for the various exorcisms he performed, despite his success. Dee had a reputation for battling the forces of evil himself. In addition to lifting the curse of the wax doll placed on the queen, which is all we know about that. Yeah, I want to know more about that. But we don't get to. We just know that there was, I think it's sort of like a, you know, the pop culture voodoo doll. Okay. Um, So Dee had dealt directly with cases of possession in his private life. His maid, Anne Frank, uh, was occupied by a wicked spirit who she said had long tempted her. Dee anointed her with holy oil and prayed for Christ's blessing of the oil to be the expulsion of the wicked. The maid tried to drown herself by jumping down a well, but Dee saved her. She later succeeded at killing herself by cutting her own throat. Winifred Goose, a mother who had lost her son and been tempted by evil, consulted Dee on exorcism but also eventually killed herself. Of the known cases of exorcism involving Dee, there's at least one where he had some success, meaning they didn't kill themselves. He liberated a woman by the name of Lady Sands of a devil. When and how have not been recovered by historians. But we know this one worked out. That's good. He seems like with the maid, he had partial success, but in the end, not so much. Yeah. Whether Dee participated directly in the exorcism of the Lancashire Seven is a subject for some debate. The fact that he was called on for help shows the extent of his reputation as an exorcist, or at least as someone capable of assisting in an exorcism. This is going back to that earlier case where Daryl helped out. But Dee's involvement in anything like an exorcism would have been a fraught affair, as British culture increasingly turned against dealings with demons, and even angels for that matter, such as a Protestant universe. After the death of Elizabeth I, James I, also known as James IV, in Scotland succeeded her. In line with the increasingly anti-supernatural culture of the time, James was actively involved in witch hunts. He'd first developed an interest in combating witchcraft while visiting Denmark, where some of the first witch hunts were held, and he was present for Scotland's North Berwick witch trials in 1590. In 1597, he wrote his own book on how to categorize and fight black magic, and that book is called Demonology. We'll get into that a bit more uh, in a couple of episodes, actually, when we start our Evil Spirit series. The persecution of exorcists and occultists had become a regular affair by the turn of the century, and in 1604, England passed a law making the conjuring of spirits a capital offense. Dee was all too familiar with this cultural change and its potential impact on his life and career. In 1594 and 1599, and again in 1604, he published... uh, This is going to take a while, Mim, so saddle up. You ready for this? Alrighty. He published a letter containing a most brief discourse apologetical with a plain demonstration and ferment protestation for the lawful, sincere, very faithful, and Christian course of the philosophical studies and exercises of a certain studious gentleman, colon, an ancient servant to her most excellent majesty royal. Uh, I'm done now. Oh, okay. Uh, that, that, That is a pretty long title, but like, yeah. Uh, which begins with the word brief. This was. <laughs> uh, I'm assuming there's nothing brief about the about the contents either. Oh, the, the letter's actually not as it's, it's it is actually fairly short compared to the title. The title does suggest a much longer letter. Okay. <laughs> this was essentially a letter to the Archbishop of Canterbury 
uh, which was printed in book form in which Dee argued that he wasn't a necromancer. Before the Almighty our God and your Lordship's good grace, this day on the peril of my soul's damnation, if I lie or take his name in vain herein, I take the same God to be my witness that with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, power, and understanding, according to the measure thereof which the Almighty hath given me, for the most part of the time from my youth hitherto, I have used and still use good, lawful, honest, Christian, and divinely prescribed means to attain to the knowledge of those truths which are meet and necessary for me to know. In the 1604 version of the letter, Dee asked to be tried and put to death if found guilty of conjuring devils. Although the trial never took place, Dee was unable to shake the label of conjurer. A victim of large-scale spiritual change, his reputation was tarnished, and although he appealed to have his name cleared, his pleas were ignored. Dee never attained a position of significance again in his lifetime. In 1605, his wife and two of his daughters died of the plague. In his last years, he was looked after by his oldest daughter, Catherine, and died in poverty and relative disrepute. Now, that's the story of John Dee. It's a very, uh, very learned and, like, well-lived individual. Yeah, but in that like, sort of classic story of the man of letters, he dies in the, in the gutter. Our sources today include the autobiographical tracks of Dr. John Dee, edited by James Crossley, Robert Barone's A Reputational History of John Dee, William Sherman's John Dee, colon, The Politics of Reading and Writing in the English Renaissance, Nicholas Cluley's The Monus Hieroglyphica and, Hieroglyphica and the Alchemical Thread of John Dee's Career, and Stephen Bowd's John Dee and the Seven in Lancashire, Possession, Exorcism, and Apocalypse in Elizabethan England. Also, John Dee, Monus Hieroglyphica glyphica, uh, at uh, the esotericarchives.com. I'm going to gong us on into our order of confessors, Mims. Do you have any objections to that? Uh, no objections here. Let us go. Yes, Mandrock says that the banter and skits are fantastic, and we're not too heavy-handed about whether you believe this stuff or not. True story, yes, Mandrock. Pluck the Duck 89 dropped five stars on Instagram because he was told to. I don't know by who. I guess by us. <laughs> At least he's honest. Yes. Uh, also, uh, Ms. Blue Sage uh, fed us some Instagram stars. That's a new thing for us, getting fed those Instagram stars, and we are... Very grateful to have them. I want to mention a a note we got from Bryce B. uh, in the old alchemical mailbox. Uh, And this is on our last episode. Uh, I'm just going to read what Bryce had to say. It's very interesting stuff. He said, in your recent episode on Faustus and the German alchemist, you talked briefly about steganography, uh, which was Trithemius's technique uh, for contacting angels. So Bryce says, today, steganography is the technique of hiding messages within other data. For instance, if you look at a JPEG file in a text editor, all you see is a jumble of bizarre characters. This is a way to put a plain text message into that jumble. Oh, there he says there is a way. So um, what you can do is you can take the JPEG, plop it in a text file, and you can read this hidden message, and you'd be able to view it. Um, so the message would be hidden, but you would only find it if you knew how to look and that you should do that. <laughs> Plop it in a text file. Now I'm just half tempted to do that with my friends. Right? He says this was famously used recently by a group calling themselves Cicada 3301 as part of a supposed recruitment puzzle. The group anonymously posted a number of bizarre occult-themed images, audio files, and text posts on the internet and in various physical locations around the gro- globe. 
uh, using cryptographic techniques to embed messages and riddles, and a large contingency of security hobbyists went nuts trying to find the solutions. No one's ever come forward to claim either responsibility or props for being Cicada 3301. So there's something for you all to Google later, or Wikipedia or whatever. <laughs> Just look them up on social media. They probably have one. Everybody has social media. They're Cicada 3301. <laughs> they're, they're, uh... I'm I'm half tempted. I just I just might look them up on Twitter later. There you go. So Mims, uh, you do a cameo on uh, Dark Pool with us, uh, but you you you've been working on uh, some some other projects. First, you did Dunwich for us uh, over the summer. So you don't know much about this project, do you? Not 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 a whole lot. Besides like uh like a few things here and there, and like the the cameo that I did. So um, wh- so uh, <laughs> why don't why don't you ask me some questions uh, and hope get our give our listeners a sense of what they what what would be in store for them here? What do you want to well, know? Well, Rob. What uh what what can you tell us about about dark pool? What can what can the audience have in have in store for? Oh, uh, very uh, good. Uh, I can't talk. <laughs> yes, excellent question. <laughs> um, so uh, basically, what's going on with dark pool is uh, we have four brand new folks who uh, never never done anything with us before. I I literally took them from uh, one of my classes at at the college. Um, and I started having them do this paranormal, a real paranormal experiment with us. Um, and out of that paranormal experiment grew this sort of uh, interesting notion of there being a kind of parallel dimension uh, that they were accessing through sound. A parallel dimension, you say? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I can say much more about it because... Uh, we're still don't want to give it away. We're still sort of arguing about it, and I don't want to tell people what to think uh, about exactly what's going on uh, with this, because I think there are a lot of ways to interpret uh, what we discovered through this work. Well, I know, I know, I'm looking forward to uh, to giving it a listen. Hello. You have reached the Alchemical Actors Hermetic Hotline. At the moment, the hotline has gone cold. If you are having a hermetic emergency, please hang up and DM us on Instagram. Otherwise, please leave a message at the sound of the tone. You think it's funny calling your occult podcast compatriot my twin? Worse yet, my identical twin? As if I'd have a twin involved in the dark art of occult podcasting. It's sick. You're a sick man. You're very, very sick. But he's got a pretty sweet speaking voice. If you'd ever be interested in doing some work for Church Secrets, have him hit us up on MySpace. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors until such a time as we get together and do it again. Uh, Our voice today was uh, John Cook. He was doing the voice of John D. And I was joined by Andrew Mims, neophyte of the order. Hi. (laughs) <laughs> Beautiful. My, my name is Rob C. Thompson. I am your Supreme Hierophant. Our next episode is going to be a special on occult creativity and occult art. And then we'll be closing the Alchemy series uh, with an uh, episode on China before we move on to our Evil Spirit series just in time for Halloween. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time here on Occult Confessions. <laughs>